You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bo's Nose Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. Welcome to the Bo's Nose Show, and I'm your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon, and it's another beautiful day here in the Pacific Northwest, and thank you for listening to the Bo's Nose Show, where we talk about all things Lane County, the state of Oregon, we'll talk national politics, we'll talk about a little bit anything you want to talk about. You just have to call us at 646-721-9887 and just press one so we know you want to get on the conversation because we'll talk about whatever you want to talk about because that's the most interesting thing to you and to people out there. Maybe not whatever's on the, on your host mind, it's what's on your mind. So again, that's 646-721-9887. Just press one and that lets Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire know we want to get in on the conversation, and hopefully this week we won't have any poodle uh, eruptions that cause me to go completely off uh, script for a few minutes, and we'll have a, a, a nice orderly show here today uh, on student-run radio, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it, it's been a little strange this year um, serving on the Board of Commissioners. I, I have, um, my first two terms, I basically served in the, in quote, the majority on the board. And this term starting in January, I'm not in the majority any longer. There's a quote, new majority on the board. And it it seems like, you know, I've gone through some kind of time warp or wormhole or some kind of, you know, quantum physics split and ended up in Multnomah County. Because it seems like Multnomah County is dictating our policy here in Lane County. You know, it started with the drumbeat around pulling out of the association of ONC counties, um, and the folks lobbying for that constantly repeated, Multnomah County pulled out. You know, do the do the same thing Multnomah County. You know, you know, follow Multnomah County's lead, and of course our new. Um, Majority followed Multnomah County's lead and pulled us out of the association of ONC counties. And then, you know, sometimes it's what you don't do and it isn't maybe so visible um, to the public uh, that also is doing that. We had an opportunity to participate in an amicus curie brief. And for those that don't know what amicus curie is, it's a friend of the court. So it allows you to, um, you know, basically uh, write a, a, a note or, or sign on to a, a note, uh, a letter to the court, a brief that explains why you think the court should rule a certain way. And we had an opportunity to participate in an amicus brief in a lawsuit between Lynn County and the governor um, and it was in particular about um, unfunded mandates. Now, the subject of the unfunded mandate was the sick leave law that was passed several years ago. And uh, you know, our current board major- majority uh, followed Multnomah County's lead and said, no, we don't want to get involved in that. Uh, we don't care if the legislature um, you know, is, is going to force on us unfunded mandates. Uh, We believe in sick leave, so therefore we shouldn't be involved in this court case when the involvement was really about the unfunded mandates, not about sick leave. But that, you know, again, we followed Multnomah County's lead. And 
you know, yesterday we did it again. And same thing, it was an amicus curie um, situation, whether we were being asked to participate in and sign on to a Multnomah County letter by Multnomah County, who, by the way, they had asked Washington County and Clackamas County to do so, and both of those counties said no. But our new board majority, you know, Multnomah County wants something. Yep, sure, we're here to do it. And they voted to participate with the uh, amicus curie brief in a Supreme Court case that basically will fundamentally change uh, common law public trust doctrine here in Oregon and enable people to sue public agencies for not taking actions. Um, the way public trust doctrine is set up now is there's if the if the government does something that restricts people from utilizing a public asset like a navigable waterway, you have a right to sue to to restrain the government from doing that. It's about restraint of government. This basically would flip that and say the government has to take positive actions to protect those things and therefore can be sued for not taking an action, uh, which opens up a whole huge new set of situations where folks can sue the government. So basically costing us money again. So, you know, it, once again, we jumped on the bandwagon with Multnomah County not because it's what is good for the county and good for local control and government, um, just because of the subject matter involved, which turns out to be about climate change. So we're, we're rushing down the road right now of, you know, whatever Multnomah County does, Lane County is going to do too, or maybe even do one better. Who knows? Um, but I'm, I'm kind of wondering if the folks that, live in East Lane District and Springfield District understood that this election meant that we were um, turning over our policy control to Multnomah County. Um, so I understand we've got a caller on the line there, Robin. Yeah, we would like to welcome Margaret to the program. Hey, Margaret, what's on your mind? Uh, oh, good afternoon, Commissioner. Oh, good afternoon, I am one of your constituents, but I work in Eugene, and so in regards to the new Eugene City Safety Tax, I'm, I'm not highly educated about it, but I have a concern both as an employee and um, because I will be paying that tax, I don't necessarily see that there's a great benefit for us uh, out in the Bonita area, uh, but also many of my coworkers are very low-wage earners, and I'm concerned about any effect on their ability to support themselves and their families if additional tax burdens are rendered, particularly those that are not uh, going to directly benefit from us. And it, it harkens back to a few years ago when there was a discussion in our community about, you know, kind of a local tax that could provide more safety in the county area, which at the time I was in support of and understood um, some of the rebuttal to that. Uh, but this particular circumstance of the city of Eugene collecting taxes from residents for safety in Eugene and its residents uh, outside of the Eugene area, can the uh, commission do anything to uh, divert some of that tax out to safety issues in the rural areas? Oh, gosh. I really wish we could. Um, and by the way, I'm going to be subject to the same tax because Lane County's offices are located in Eugene, yet I live out here in Elmira right. with you. Um, right. And, uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, the city of Eugene cooked up this idea, never consulted with the county or any other partners in the area about it, and passed it rather quickly um, to support their public safety. And basically, you're going to be taxing a lot of non-city residents to support the, the city police department with the justification was those folks work downtown. So those police will actually be protecting them while they're at work and, and their, their employers benefit from it. So it's the employer, your location of employment is why, why they get to collect the tax. Um, and unfortunately there's nothing in state law that allows us to enter the County to interfere with that. Um, it, it's, 
it, it's really. Are you aware if um, there's? A, sorry, go ahead. Sorry for interrupting. Margaret. Okay, um, are you aware if there is any effort to try to uh, get an initiative going? I know the initiative process that attempted once failed. Is are you aware if any other initiative processes will be pursued? I don't know. I know there was one that was attempted and and they failed. Um, my guess is. I haven't heard of one, but some, you know, the unfortunate thing is the people most upset about this can't sign a petition and can't vote for a city right. councilor or the mayor, you know? So it's true taxation without representation, which really boggles my mind that the city would go there. Um, you know, at least, you know, say if Lane County was to put a, um, uh, a levy out that included city of Eugene residents, like we put the uh, the uh, levy for the jail out, um, and mm-hmm. we're taxing city of Eugene residents. They still have count. They still have commissioners they vote for. <laughs> and if they had wanted to collect signatures on a petition about that, they could have, and they had an opportunity to vote for or against it. This is kind of you know the only people that voted for this was the city council, um, and. None of the, and a lot of people that are going to be impacted um, don't live in the city. Uh, one of the things I have heard, though, is if you, uh, I've, I've been checking into this, is uh, if you don't say your employer has more than one location and you work at different locations for that employer, uh, it, the rate can be prorated to the number of hours that you work in in inside city limits. Um, mm-hmm. But that's you know, you'd have to have an employer like, say, a restaurant chain or something like that, where if you worked in, in the Bonita location one day and worked in the Eugene location another, they'd be able to prorate the tax that way. Um, but that's, you know, not going to help people that work full-time in Eugene. Right. And, and your your coworkers that are, are low-wage and, and going to get that taken out of their paycheck starting next next July. Um, it's you know just tough unless we can convince some folks that are city of Eugene residents to circulate petitions to reverse that um, and and get city of Eugene residents to sign those petitions, you know, we can go help collect the signatures. That's you know, as as citizens uh, of you know, we're allowed to collect signatures. We just can't sign the, the petitions. Only city of Eugene folks can. So right. it's going to be, it's a heavy lift to try and get it, get it back on the ballot. Um, you know, I, I just, you know, I wonder if there's going to be some impacts. I wonder if there's going to be employers that cho- choose to move their, their operations outside the city. Um, if they start seeing some impacts that way, maybe they'll, rethink the tax but um right. it's kind of like if we passed a serial levy or tried to get a serial levy passed where we had city of eugene folks paying for rural patrol you know, yeah. it wouldn't, wouldn't exactly you know yes those city of eugene folks spend a lot of time out in lane county um in fact our search and rescue people over half the people they rescue are from inside city limits <laughs> not eugene but eugene springfield and other cities. Um, yeah. So, you know, our rural patrol folks do, do service the city folks, but it's, this is kind of a new system and something I've never seen tried before where they're going to be able to tax non-residents to pay for police services. Yeah. I I don't know what to tell you. Well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate your feedback on that, and I will continue to to look for um, any opportunities people might be doing to do an initiative to interrupt that. Yeah. Well, if you have any friends that live in the city that are actually city residents, maybe you can convince one of your friends to pick up the ball and, and, and roll with it. If, and maybe anyone else that's listening to Bo's Nose Show that lives outside the city that's worried about the city income tax, Talk to your friends that live in the city and see if they think it's unfair. And, and really, you know, I know the folks in Eugene like to talk about equity all the time. Is it equitable? 
you know, particularly right. seeing folks that are living out here, and particularly folks like me that live outside of, of a city limit, what's our level of police services? You know, what, what's right. the response time call for a sheriff, you know? And, and yet I'm going to be taxed to pay for, you know, a city of Eugene residence to have a five-minute response time, you know, three to five-minute response time. It, it, you know, where's the equity in that? So, Good point. Yep. Talk, talk, talk to your friends in the city. Maybe eventually we'll get enough people, you know, concerned that they'll they'll start the process and maybe get it on the ballot. Sounds good, Commissioner. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Margaret. Thank you for listening. You're welcome. See, that's just how easy it is to control the topic on the Bose Nose Show. You just have to call us at 646-721-9887. Just press 1 so we know you want to get in on the conversation. And you can control the topic here on the Bose Nose Show versus letting me control the topic which, you know, if you let me talk too long, it'll eventually come around to poodles and, and other things, you know, you know, maybe you don't want to listen and hear about. So remember, give us a call, 646-721-9887. Just press one. So, you know, a couple other things happened in the board meetings this week. And uh, I kind of want to talk about another item that came up um, and I actually made sure this got pulled for a separate vote so I could vote against it. But in the budget process, one of the things that came up is there's a real push by the new commissioners and the current chair to have paid commissioners assistance. And um, at least we we're able to kind of make that not be as expensive as it could have been um, to the citizens. But I've functioned for eight years without an assistant in one of the largest districts in, in the in the county. And Commissioner um, Stewart functioned for about you know, 14 or 15 years without an assistant in East Lane. Uh, but our new... Uh, New board voted yesterday to approve uh, half FTE position description so that um, our new East Lane commissioner, Commissioner Buck, could hire somebody to be her assistant half time. Um, and you know, she made statements uh, during the during the discussion item that because her district was so big, she really needed an assistant to uh, properly function. Uh, and kind of got back to talking about how there used to be assistance and all that stuff when the board had money. I would have been against assistance back then. You know, we are a full-time board of commissioners, and we're getting paid, you know, a good wage. I think it's about $86,000 a year. I'd have to go back and look. I don't, to be honest, I, don't, I couldn't tell you an exact figure. But it's over $80,000 a year to be full-time commissioners. And what's really sad is we've got one commissioner that's still practicing law on the side and making personal money practicing law. Maybe not very much, but he's still doing it. Yet putting this in the budget this way is going to allow him to hire an assistant to do part of his job that he's, he's being paid 80000 plus a year to do, not including PERS benefits and full um, health benefits and everything else that we have, um, and then go off and practice law on the side and earn extra money that way. So, you know, I, I really object to the idea of having assistants and then having folks go out and earn money uh, in, in that way, you know, it's just, you're either a commissioner or you're not a commissioner. And one of the things I tell people is you're never not a commissioner if you are a commissioner. So yeah, it, it's not a 40 hour a week job. If you're a rural commissioner, like I am, it's way more than 40 hours if you're going to do it well. And 
yeah, you have to do your own calendar. You have to, you have to answer your own phone calls. You have to answer your own emails. You know, Crimea River at over $80,000 a year plus full benefits. You know, I'm sorry. I had to vote no on that one yesterday, but our, our new Multnomah County um, majority voted yes. They have to have assistance in order to get their jobs done. Now, mind you, this is the same group of people that consistently says, you know, we're, that democracy is not doing well in this country. And, you know, we over, you know, money has too much power in politics and incumbents, you know, constantly get reelected because of the power of incumbency. Well, what do you think those assistants are going to be doing? And, and who do you think they're going to be hiring as assistants? Those assistants are going to be doing things that are going to be helping them get reelected. Yeah, it's going to be public money paying for those assistants. So I, I, everything about it just bothers me. From in, it, you know, it improves the, the ease of an incumbent to get reelected, gives them an advantage using the public's money instead of private donations. Um, it, it, it provides an opportunity for one of our commissioners to, to even expand his, his law practice because he'll have even more time because he can not have, have to answer his own phone and emails. He can have his assistant do it and do his own, you know, have his assistant do his calendar and his assistant, you know, reply to, to correspondence. You know, it's just like, my gosh. <laughs> on one hand, you're complaining about, you know, democracy and on the other hand you're you're taking advantage of your incumbency to set yourself up using public money for re-election i i just if the whole thing about it just bothers me there's a definite no vote for me so if you want to watch yesterday's board meeting i made basically the same argument then but ended up on a 4-1 vote similar to the amicus brief on the uh Supreme Court case around um, public trust doctrine uh, was a 4-1 vote. I seem to be the, the one on some of these votes. Um, but, you know, I have a, a strict um, philosophy that government should happen at the most local level possible. And that just, if that brief they signed on to was arguing to have the state courts become local governments and be able to tell us what to do. Similar to allowing this, you know, by not participating in that other brief, they're okay with allowing the state to tell us to do certain things, but not provide us the money to do those certain things and unfunded mandates, giving up local control in both cases. And um, I really believe that it's important to have government at the level where you can call in like Margaret did and talk directly to, to somebody that's involved in making the decisions that affect your life. You, you know, how difficult is it for you to get a hold of your U.S. Senator and talk directly about something that he's doing that's going to affect your life? How difficult is it for you to even get a hold of a state senator and talk directly to him? You know, that that's really, you know, your county commissioners, your city councilors, that's government at the most local level. And yesterday we had had a 4-1 vote that basically said, you know what, we're going to let lawsuits and the courts control what we do and to be able to tell us what to do. So that's, you know, Getting to be a little frustrating to watch that, you know, just because you like what the courts are going to do this time doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be what you want them to do a year from now or three years from now if you change that doctrine. And that's what that brief was arguing is to change that doctrine and allow the courts to say, you know what, you have to do this. So 
had a few other discussions yesterday, uh, talked about the armory building a little bit. Um, and I don't know if people are aware of this. We have an empty building on our Servo um, youth campus there um, off of Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard there across from Odson Stadium that used to be the National Guard um, armory uh, back there. And it's been empty for 20 years or so. Um, it's in the floodplain. The floor uh, elevation is below flood level. So we haven't really occupied it. It has no working heating or air conditioning. So it's really not a very usable space. But we actually looked at it as a possible place to move our developmental disabilities uh, department and our quality control for health and human services over there. Um, and got a report back from the architect and had basically said, yeah, if you want to do that, it's going to be over $12 million to remodel that building and make it flood proof. Or you could tear it down and build a brand new building that would better suit what you need now and into the future for about $14 million or so. Um, or you can kind of keep developmental disabilities in the public service building and remodel there, but it's only going to be good for a few more years, and that's only $1.6 million. So basically for almost 10 times the cost um, for a new, you know, is to go to a new building that kind of that rebuilding the armory just doesn't make any sense at all. That, that second option, uh, uh, you know, basically we can keep developmental disabilities in the public service building or we can move them out to MLK in a new building were kind of the two options that rose to the top there. And I kind of asked some questions around um, what other space might be coming available in our building because the city's renting about 10,000 square feet of that building and they want to build their city hall and move out. So there may be even more space in our building. And we've also talked about building a new courthouse. So there may be a whole courthouse building that comes up available. So I'm a little, little questioning about um, the spending $14 million plus for a new building when we may have space opening up in existing buildings. And I, and I asked some questions around that and hopefully we'll get um, some answers back on some of those questions so I can, you know, we can decide. We didn't make a decision one way or another. We didn't direct staff to go towards, let's tear down the armory and build a new building. Um, but, and hopefully at least, you know, maybe as we're making those decisions, um, there's been some thought about using the armory building for storage, um, uh, particularly for when they do, you know, you saw the news today where they cleaned up a homeless camp. Uh, there's a state law that if some of those possessions actually look like they were, you know, you know, important papers and everything else, they're actually supposed to be stored for 90 days and maybe providing some storage capability for folks that have been made homeless. And then also when we clean up homeless camps, that building may be, you, you know, a possibility of providing that storage uh, over the winter or something like that. So, um, you know, that was, part of yesterday's meeting. Then we had a big report back on preventing um, use of cannabis by youth um, and trying to keep it out of the hands of, of minors. And um, basically talked about trying to reduce the advertising and targeting of youth and some of the um, naming and all that. And most of that's controlled by the state. So it's mostly comes down to us lobbying the state to try and do some of that stuff. But it's kind of interesting. I brought up, you know, the Eugene Weekly, which uh, somewhere about a third to a half of their advertising is marijuana and cannabis. They actually want us to start calling it cannabis now. Um, there's apparently some kind of stigma behind using the term marijuana because it was a slang term that um, folks feel is derogatory towards Latinos. Uh, and cannabis is actually the correct scientific name. So we're trying to make sure we use that name instead. The other thing they want us to start referring to is um, retail cannabis, not recreational cannabis, because um, kind of like we don't refer to recreational alcohol. <laughs> so retail cannabis, got to kind of 
keep reminding myself of that because I, I you know, recreational marijuana was the terminology for quite a long time. But uh, some of the things, you know, that they talked about doing those is maybe passing some local ordinances through votes of people that would prevent the establishment of um, marijuana lounges in Lane County uh, and uh, uh, allowing uh, open use of marijuana at special events, um, cannabis, sorry, cannabis lounges and cannabis uh, use in special events. And uh, also um, establishing a thousand foot minimum spacing between cannabis retailers for any new licenses in Lane County would be something that we could do locally um, to a vote of the people. So there's some thought that that may be coming to you guys in a future ballot. So don't be surprised. And it's kind of about just trying to um, make it less prevalent and public and acceptable maybe towards youth that don't think it's harmful, but, you know, people don't understand and, and, you know, calling it recreational marijuana, maybe downplayed it and maybe just the whole discussion of medical marijuana made it seem like it might be something good for you. But when it comes to youth in particular, while the brain is developing, cannabis actually changes brain pathways permanently. It actually has permanent damaging effects on youth brain development. And it's been scientifically proven so that, you know, kids that are still, and your brain develops to your age 25, but definitely under 21 should not be regularly uh, partaking in cannabis. So we, you know, because it really, it, it will change your brain for the rest of your life and not in a positive manner. So um, we really need to get the youth to understand that. Once your brain's finished developing, it no longer has that that impact. So, you know, you adults over 25 to 30, um, when your brain's finished developing, you know, you're, you're probably not doing as much harm maybe as alcohol does to your liver in some ways. <laughs> but still, yeah, and there's, then there's the whole issue of impaired driving and some other things, but that's beside the point. But truly for youth, Cannabis is massively destructive to your long-term prospects in life because of what it does to your brain pathways and what it does to the development of the brain. So um, somehow or another, we got to get people to understand that. And somehow or another, we, we, we need to make sure that it doesn't become, oh, it's just cannabis. You know, what's, what's the big deal? You know, and we got, you know, so parents need to be a lot more careful about, you know, letting their kids have access to their stash if they're, if they're folks that, that, that are adults that are partaking. And we have to just be a lot more vigilant around that. And just like with tobacco advertising and everything else, we, we don't want to regularize and, and um, make it seem like it's a normal thing to be, um, in, you know, utilizing cannabis for youth in particular. So interesting discussion at the board on that yesterday. We cover a lot of ground, don't we? Say from assistance to, uh, um, you know, the the use of the armory building for development of disabled, which by the way, I had to, to note one of the reasons why we're looking at using the armory building and why our, we need to remodel possibly to, to expand our development of disabled is our number of developmentally disabled people over the last several years has gone from a clientele of a little over 1,200 to almost 2,500 clients. And, and with that, there's, you know, money that comes in from the federal government, the state to fund those, you know, um, caseworkers and everything else. So the budget's been going up for that department uh, and the workload's going up. You could almost say the exact opposite for our local nonprofits that serve the developmentally disabled, that they've been going in the other direction. And it's all based on a change in, in 
what's known as uh, closed workshops. And there used to be um, the ability to have a workplace that was specifically for developmentally disabled people that was kind of a closed, you know, workshop where, you know, you would contract with a, uh, uh, a manufacturer maybe to have some kind of simple manufacturing um, uh, step done with those employees. And uh, they were, you know, kind of paid through that, that nonprofit that kept, you know, kept, you know, got them out of their house situation so that the caregivers had, had respite during the day and provided something meaningful for these people to do in a social environment. Um, and for a lot of those workers was really helpful. You know, the problem is, is there were some agencies that were sort of abusing that closed workshop environment. And um, so that there's a, a couple legal cases around that and the pendulum swang in the regulatory and basically said no more closed workshops. And all these uh, developmentally disabled folks are supposed to be mainstreamed out into standard workplaces. Um, and not all of them do well in that situation. Some of them thrive in a closed workshop. So there was no kind of in-between that was fixed there. But those agencies dealing with the developmentally disabled have been really harmed by that decision around no more closed workshops. Yet suddenly Lane County has got twice as many clients in our developmentally disabled division. I think there might be a relationship between those. You know, so we basically went from nonprofits providing the service for probably far less, and now the county government, through state funding and federal funding, is providing those services. Um, something sort of doesn't make sense here, and we maybe, maybe that was the other part of the point I made yesterday around you know should we build a new building for development and disabled people is maybe we should be lobbying the state around swinging that pendulum back somewhere in the middle and allowing closed workshops for those, you know, developmentally disabled clients that function best there and providing that choice and maybe their, their guardians being involved in that decision and choosing do they wish to be, you know, mainstream. Because what happens with those that can't mainstream, they end up not um, getting out at all and having any sort of, um, you know, they end up homebound which is hard on the caregivers and hard on the person. So really there needs to be something different there. I just didn't want to forget to talk about that a little bit too, because that's, you know, as we think about uh, the developmentally disabled, um, we need to do, make our decisions and what best for them, not necessarily just these one size fit all, Closed workshops truly didn't fit everybody and were somewhat abused, but mainstreaming and putting people into standard workplaces uh, doesn't necessarily fit all the clients either. You know, one of the things I, I heard a client of a, of, of a local nonprofit that was, was um, utilizing closed workshops, and I thought in a very constructive way, you know, when she was talking about how much she likes going there was I'm free to be me. You know, so she just wants to burst in the song, you know, in the middle of the day. It's not a problem. It's expected in that in that setting. Whereas if she's being mainstream and and you know working cleaning the lobby of, of a restaurant or something like that or and uh decides to burst into song, she may put some of the customers off a little bit. And, and, you know, suddenly have to be shushed by somebody or whatever else. And, and that doesn't, that's not, you know, being free to be me, you know. So it's just uh, um, need, need to have a balance there. It's, a, it's amazing the way court decisions and government decisions seem to swing pendulum back and forth where they, always set the pendulum way to one side or way to the other. They never stop it in the middle and let it sit at rest. You know, <laughs> I just can't, I can't understand how it seems to happen, but you know, you see it time and time again. 
Uh, yeah, we saw the um, court decision with the homeless uh, in Boise and what that's done with homeless camping on the streets uh, in Eugene here. And if folks aren't familiar with that, there was a, a Ninth Circuit Court decision against the city of Boise said they could not um, trespass and relocate and, and arrest people that were homeless and sleeping in public rights of ways um, if they did not have a place for them to go that was non-religious. So, you know, our local Eugene Mission being a, a religious uh, institution doesn't qualify. So we don't have a non-religious bed for somebody here. We cannot move them from public property basically said it was a violation of their constitutional rights to do so. And because that was the Ninth Circuit that made that decision, it applies to Washington, Oregon, Idaho, California, you know, everybody that's part of that Ninth Circuit. So it's the law right now. But it was kind of a big swing of the pendulum, you know, <laughs> all the way to now we can't really do anything without, you know, supposedly violating somebody's constitutional rights. And you see what's happened with people camping uh, in that little strip of grass between the sidewalk and the curb all over Eugene. And it's not really the city of Eugene's fault in some ways. It's that court decision that doesn't allow the city of Eugene to move those people, although they just passed an ordinance that says they, they can move them. But I'll be, I'll be interesting to see if that gets challenged in court. Um, but you trying to step in here, Robin? I thought I heard some noise in the background. No, it wasn't me. Okay. Thank you. Sorry. I just, you know, maybe it was a little bit of feedback coming back to me. I'll, but I'll be shout next time. Okay. Sounds good. I'll take a breath here and remind folks that I'll talk about whatever you want to talk about here on the Bo's Nose Show. 646-721-9887. Just press one if you want to get in on the conversation. You know, we're throwing a lot of red meat out there. Are we now Multnomah County? You know, did, did, when we had the last election, did folks really say, okay, whatever Multnomah County does, we want Lane County to do the same thing. Um, so I'd like to hear from folks about that. Talked a little bit about should we have assistance for the uh, commissioners. Talked a little bit because Margaret called in about the new income tax and whether that's equitable to those folks that live outside of Eugene but work inside of Eugene, they're going to have to pay for the city police force inside the city of Eugene while we live out here in rural Lane County and don't have police coverage. So um, we can talk about that. We can talk about, um, you know, our services for developmentally disabled and should we build a new building for that. Um, we can talk about cannabis prevention for youth. You know, those are a few things we've thrown out there. Or anything else that you want to talk about, just 646-721-9887. Just press 1 if you want to get on the conversation. So, you know, we got about 13, 14 minutes left here in the program. I want to throw out another piece of red meat, and I'm sure – you know, this has some interest because it's hit the news somewhat. I'm sure it's going to be on uh, KVAL tonight because they were there at a board meeting today. And that's the, uh, the, uh, the nurse midwifery uh, birth center um, that Peace Health is choosing to close. Uh, a lot of public comment over the last several weeks asking the Board of Commissioners to step in and take action. Um, they convinced the majority of the board to go ahead and schedule a work session and uh, invite the folks from Peace Health and the advocates supporting the birth center, as well as representatives of the state at OHA that actually are the ones that regulate Peace Health and the birth center. We don't have any regulatory authority over that. Um, Peace Health and the governor's office chose not to send anybody. So it's basically the Board of Commissioners and the same advocates that have been supplying public comment to us talking today. Um, we did get a letter from Peace Health, though, kind of explaining where, where things are going. Um, but it was kind of um, interesting because one of the things that came out in the conversation is there's actually three locations now 
in Lane County that provide midwifery services. Midwifery, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, midwifery services. Um, and they're talking about closing one, but the only thing that's really significant is it is the one location where you can have an out-of-hospital birth. We provide midwifery services at our uh, community health centers, and Peace Health provides them at the hospital. And in fact, they are going to continue to provide uh, low intervention midwife um, attended births at the hospital. And their intent is to actually build a more home-like setting to have those in. <clears throat> They're just not gonna have the standalone birth center. And one of the reasons why is um, to qualify to have a birth birth center has to be a low risk birth. And as women and, and families are deciding to have births later in life, and with the increase of diet, you know, type two diabetes and high blood pressure and other issues in the American population, the number of low risk pregnancies is dropping as a percentage of our population to the point where only 3% of the births uh, at Peace Health you know, that were uh, Peace Health did in hospital versus the, the birth center, only 3% took place in the birth center. So 97% of the births took place in the hospital in the last several years. So we're only talking about 3% of the births. You know, it is a great service, and I think it's a really great thing to be able to have um, your child outside of the hospital. It's also cheaper you know i won't discount that but um it's also a service that's that's decreasing in usage and and still has some fixed costs around it so i think um peace health made a determination that it was uh better for them to bring that you know all back into the hospital uh in one setting and uh you know i think uh you know, there is some issues around, you know, there, they, there was a charitable drive to build the birth center. So folks gave money to the Peace Health Organization to build that building for birth center. So there's, you know, that's a civil action issue between the donors and Peace Health if they violated something. Um, and it'd be great if Peace Health maybe took longer to make the transition um, to the hospital from the birth center to make sure that everyone that started their pregnancy at the birth center has an opportunity to complete it. Um, but we don't have any authority to take action against them and to make them change that. Um, you know, we definitely don't have the resources or the wherewithal to take over the birth center. First of all, we don't even own the building. Peace Health does. So they'd have to somehow or another by September 1st agree to sell us a building, sell us a practice. We'd have to pick up the practice, figure out how we're going to cover the live, the, the, you know, the, the insurance coverage uh, for it as far as, um, you know, um, mal, you know, medical malpractice, um, which anything involving childbirth is actually the highest risk category and has the highest premiums. Um, so there's all sorts of issues that come with that. Um, but I thought, you know, our chair was providing a lot of false hope towards that, that group. So I, I took some time to kind of say, you know, we may be able to do something down the road to reestablish a birth center with county help, but to change what's going to happen on September 1st for us is not possible. And to try and make you think that is giving you false hope because we don't own the building, we're not set up to take over the service right now, and it's a month away. So um, best thing that could happen, I think, is, is you know, if Peace Health were to listen a little bit more to those, those folks and maybe do a longer transition or, or a, a more stepped transition between the closure where it doesn't close completely um, and, and work on that. There still will be you know, a lot of the services that midwives provide from uh, well woman care all the way through uh, lactation advice and, and 
postnatal care um, uh, of women uh, and babies, um, uh, you know, the weekly weigh-ins and things like that can happen um, at our community health clinics or at Peace Health uh, Center uh, at the hospital. So hoping that, you know, was, um, you know, some good news that maybe the, the, if you only listened to the complaints about the closure, you probably wouldn't have known that there are actually two other centers where uh, midwives provide services in Lane County. Um, the other thing we heard about today um, was that this um, good neighbor authority um, harvest is getting ready to happen in the Willamette uh, National Forest. And, you know, they're touting all the benefits of it, you know, and basically what good neighbor authority is, is, is allowing the state to act as an agent for the U.S. Forest Service. And basically it's taking some state money to fund some positions so the state can go in and set up a timber sale for the Forest Service. And then once that timber sale goes on, that, that revenue from that timber sale gets plowed back into the setting up more timber sales and um, providing some uh, funding to the Willamette National Forest instead of going to the counties under the formulas that it normally goes to. Um, so that uh, that's a uh, that's kind of a you know the uh, sorry I'm being distracted by electronics here. That that sounds like a great thing because we're actually getting to do several thousand acres of of thinning and and trying to prevent fire and all that stuff. But um, we are, they're hoping to, with the help of this good neighbor authority and the state paying for staff to work for the Forest Service instead of the Forest Service and the Congress paying for it, um, they're hoping to get to 100, uh, 100 uh, uh, million board feet a year of harvest. The Willamette National Forest grows 1 billion board feet a year. So they're hoping to get up to one tenth of of the of the growth rate. So they're still falling 900 million board feet a year behind the growth of the forest. So as far as making it fireproof, this isn't quite going to do it. Um, but the real sad part is the only reason this is happening is because Congress has failed to fund the Forest Service staff adequately so they can, you know, set up these sales and be be you know doing the sales. Um, yes, the sales generate jobs, but if Congress were funding the Forest Service, we'd be, those jobs would be happening anyway. So I don't like looking at this as a jobs program. Um, you know, when it talk about stream restoration, we've got a whole different, you know, lottery funds and other funds that go into stream restoration through the Oregon uh, Water Enhancement Board, um, and they get $50 million a year to do that. So that's covered. Um, this is all about the failure of the federal government to adequately fund the Forest Service and the, the, the practice of fire borrowing that's robbed the staff away from the Forest Service. Um, hopefully that practice is over with. They finally corrected that in Congress last year, and this is the last budget cycle of fire borrowing going on. So going forward, that might not be as big a problem, but... Um, Good neighbor authority sounds like a great thing, but it's basically having the state make up for the lack of federal government responsibility for our national force. So, yeah, so um, I see my, my producer was asking me what I thought about a gross receipts tax as we were talking about the, the, the income tax. Um, that Eugene put on. How do I get your blood boiling a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, the one thing I, I, I like, taxation one, I like it to be at the most local level possible, just like government. But also, I like taxes to be visible to the people paying them. So they know they're paying that tax. The gross receipts tax is a hidden tax. You'll see it 
sort of in increased prices, but you'll see nothing on your receipt from the grocery store or your, you know, at the gas pump or anything like that that says your price went up by X number of pennies because of the gross receipts tax that was charged on, you know, the purchase of the truck that delivered your food, the, uh, the packaging that was put around your food and, and the, uh, the grocery receipts of the store, you know, the, all those things that add up into that price, you know, that are hidden in the gross receipts tax. Because gross receipts tax charged, you know, in so many places, so it builds on itself even, you know, the, you know, the person that that, you know, mines the ore for the metal, if they're in Oregon, would get charged gross receipts tax on the sale of that ore, and then the person that refines that ore and makes metal ingots out of it would get charged when they sell the metal ingots. And the person that actually makes the, the, the metal into a usable part for a car and they sell those parts would get charged a gross receipts tax. And then when they put that car together and sell it to you, you're going to pay all those gross receipts tax plus whatever the car manufacturers, you know, has to pay on those gross receipts tax. So it all builds up on itself. Yeah, gross receipts tax is a hidden tax. It's a multiplying tax. It's a regressive tax. You know, in some ways I like it because it's technically a it's a consumption tax. I like consumption taxes, but they have to be on the tail end and visible, like a sales tax. So, yeah, don't get me started about gross receipts tax. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, at least in some ways, most people are aware they're paying an income tax. Some people aren't because it's withdrawn from your paycheck every time. <clears throat> I always love the people go, oh, I'm getting a, a refund on my taxes. Like it's some great thing. It's like you just loan the government your money for free for a year, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, they don't look at that pay, that, that pay receipt where, you know, the gross amount and then the net amount. <clears throat> and how much they're paying. So even income taxes are slightly hidden, and even property taxes are slightly hidden. But at least you get mailed a statement every year if you're a property owner that shows exactly how much your property taxes are and what the different components are, like how much is going to the city of Eugene, how much is going to Lane County, how much is going to you know, this fire district or that school district. Um, and you can see that on your property tax bill, you know, very visibly. Um, but as you're paying, if you've got your mortgage set up to be collecting um, money to pay your property tax, you don't actually write a check for it. So it can kind of seem invisible until you get that bill every year. Um, so, yeah, I'm all for taxes that are visible and people understand they're paying for it. Yeah. You know, Pretty easy to understand when when you see the price of something on the shelf in a state that has a sales tax, and then you take it up to the cash register, and they charge you, you know, eight cents more for that dollar item, and you get the receipt, and the receipt has the total for that item, and then the sales tax on it, and then the total with the sales tax. That's pretty easy to see. You just paid eight cents in tax on that item, you know. Yeah. tax, you're going to get a, a, a receipt that says $1.08, and you don't know if you paid $0.08 cents in taxes on that item or $0.28. Cents. What do you mean $5 for a Snickers bar? Yeah. <laughs> hey, by the time we do a gross receipts tax, and if they ever get the cap and, and, and uh, spend bill through, which will be another hidden tax, carbon taxes are hidden just like gross receipts taxes, and they build on themselves because they get built into the prices of products that get resold. Um, and so, yeah, that might be true. We might be up to $5 Snicker bars between gross receipts tax, carbon taxes, um, the gas taxes that we increased a couple years ago. You know, think about, you know, there has to be some gasoline spent moving that Snicker bar from the you know, the wholesaler to the retailer. <laughs> oh, well, I think we ran the clock out on another episode of the Bose Nose Show. 
I appreciate you listening to Bo's No Show here every Wednesday at 4 o'clock. We'll be back next week at this time with another thrilling episode live from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. Thank you.